And he goes, oh, I know. He said, when you went in to get to drink of water, I threw it down there because it's going to be at the racetrack. <laughs> and he said, I had to find out if you're going to cry about your elbow or you're going to finish my pit stop. Yeah, so, that's, that, that, that's great to hear that, like, truly the government is doing something for us, right? Like, it, it's, right. it's paying back, ultimately. I bring uh, the bottle to various friends' houses as a gag gift because it's so fucking bad. How bad is it? <clears throat> it's horrible. It's, it's not palatable. It's not drinkable. Whiskey Acres bad? Worse. Welcome to Oil and Whiskey, an Ironclad original. Today's guest is Jeff Clark, Executive Vice President of Roush Yates Engines. It's 2024, fellas. How about that? Yeah, buddy. We made it. Still here. Yeah. <laughs> it's yep, new year. New year, new me, new you, new Josh. Uh, Got some New Year's resolutions. We never really had a, a proper kind of send off to the uh, last season and said thank you to all of the uh, the wonderful listeners that have. <laughs> that's why I don't play sports. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason. Uh, <laughs> it's the only reason. Uh, but we had a great 2023. Looking forward to a great 2024. Well said. Uh, I could not have said that better myself. Some dude. big changes coming for 2024. We have big changes. May or may not be new chairs since Jeremy <laughs> asked for new chairs. Uh, we'll do, we'll do, we'll talk about the whiskey we're oh. drinking and then we'll get to the review at the end. Let's do that. Let's be the whiskey. Would you like to read the letter, Jeremy? <clears throat> I could, sure. You yeah. received this though, huh? Yeah, we received this, this a, in the mail. Okay. Hey, 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 hey guys. Hey guys. I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> hey, guys. I wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. Just a fellow car builder that is a huge fan of the Roadster Shop and loving the podcast. Enjoy some whiskey on me. Not sure if you heard about or have had Mike Rowe's noble whiskey. Also threw in a bottle of our local stuff made up the road from my shop. My two best pieces of advice I've ever received, one from a customer that I should really try to follow. Ha, ha, ha. Pretend you're rich. And you'll be poor. Pretend you're poor and you'll be rich. That's kind of cool. And one from my great uncle. I wish he'd name the great uncle. I like uncle names. It's always like an Uncle Mike or an Uncle Larry. Uncle Terry. Uncle Terry. Uncle Gary. <laughs> uncle, yeah. A lot of uncles name with the Y. Yeah. That's right. But this uncle remains unnamed. <laughs> <laughs> he will always follow and could, it couldn't be more true. Don't leave for tomorrow what you can accomplish today. Be safe. Keep kicking ass. Merry Christmas. I don't, think, I don't think Uncle Terry said the last part of it, but uh, Austin Clark. Austin And Clark. he is gearhead9105 on Instagram. On Instagram. Check him out, man. Thanks, Austin. We appreciate it, man. Thank uh, you, sir. That's Dude, an cheers. Uncle, I think that's an Uncle Larry. Austin, drop us a comment. Let us know what your uncle's yeah. name was. We're, we're curious, but that's good. That's good advice. So we're starting out with the, with the Lichtfield Distillery. Lichfield. Litchfield. I yep. only know that because I had a friend Alex, from Litchfield. Alex Litchfield, a oh. fucking weirdo. But <laughs> no relation. Way back Hope in the he's day. listening. Yeah. Assume no relation. Yeah. Uh, Litchfield Distillery Batchers Double Barreled Bourbon Whiskey, age five years, ninety proof. Uh, Litchfield, Connecticut. Vanilla, Connecticut. Connecticut. So we'll be doing a uh, little review on this towards the end. Starts out pretty good. It's good stuff. Very drinkable. I'll tell you that. Uh, pleasantly surprised yeah 
It is. You can tell the double-barreled. Are you reading that because you didn't think that I read it accurately? No, I, I think I just made it all up. Just wanted to see if it was like <laughs> micro of the micro. Dirty this jobs. is this is yeah. yes micro of Dirty <clears throat> Jobs. This is named after his dad. His dad's name was Noble. Maybe granddad. But his last name was Noble. It's hmm. a noble man. That micro. Tennessee whiskey, barrel strength. Micros. I don't know the man, so and he'd be a good dude to have on here. It I'd, would be I'd great. Lo- I'd love to. Have would him love here. that. If only we've reached out. I'd love to just have him times. talk me to sleep every night. His voice is just. <laughs> Tell you what, have you ever listened to his uh, "The Way I Heard It"? Yes. Oh, it's an awesome podcast. Phil yeah. turned me onto that. Yeah. It's Josh turned great. me onto it. It's a uh, full circle here. It is full circle. It's a, it's a circle. <laughs> it's, it's a you know almost kind of like a old Harvey, uh, Paul Harvey's little radio. Way back in the day, you remember Paul Harvey? I'm not as old as you are now. I was listening to it with my dad. But it was it's like short little stories and stuff, so he kind of does it in that way. And uh, But, yeah, he's got his mission to uh, bring the trades back and everything yeah. he's always he's done. He's overall just a kick-ass dude. Yeah. His message is awesome. His shows are awesome. I bet you he's got a surprisingly firm handshake. I think it's just about the right amount, I'd guess. Really? Yeah. yeah. Because I'm, you come in, you come in hot. There's nothing worse than coming in with a fucking like death grip, you know. I mean, I know it, you get surprised. It's I'm, off-putting, right? I don't know if he knows that he's that he's squeezing. No, as I hard think he does. He I think he's shaked enough blue-collar hands that he knows how to how, to, right how to come in with the right pressure. You think he ever dead fishes anybody? No. <laughs> Mike doesn't <laughs> fuck with dead fish. fish. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I inadvertently dead fished a dad at the uh, wrestling tournament Did a couple you? weeks ago. It was because it was an awkward thing because, like, my wife was introducing. She's like, oh, it's so-and-so, so-and-so. And I kind of turn, and I'm at an awkward angle. Well, then he reaches back on, like, the bleachers, right? And I just hit it all wrong. <laughs> and it, it was almost kind of like, hey, can I get a do-over? Like, that was, Dude, that was a yeah, bad handshake. nothing worse than a bad handshake. <laughs> it's like, there's something wrong with me. something wrong with him. Like, I mean, no, dude, like I, I've done it before. I know how to shake hands. <laughs> the worst. He ended up kind of like just getting on this <laughs> yeah, part. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's the fucking short shift. When you come in and you just get like the. the that's what it was. The second knuckle. Yeah. It feels uh, so dirty. It's like. The, just, it ruined the whole day. We were there all day long and I kept wanting to be like, hey. That's like. Man, the, it's good seeing you. <laughs> that's the equivalent of like a soft hug. Yeah. I feel like you might as well just come in and then like there's there's a lot that goes into the proper, you know, thumb lock. Yep. Squeeze at the proper time. Uh, I think you got to call it out. Dude, fuck that one up. We got to yeah, go again. Yeah, let's go yeah. again. That usually ends because then it comes into like the <laughs> <laughs> you just can't you can't recover. Yeah. Throws you off your game. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it happens. And you go in lackadaisical and it, again, I'm blaming it on the it was an awkward awkward position. Seated on bleachers, different it, height. It happens. Yeah. It's no making fun of his Corvette to his face. <laughs> that's, that's more awkward. It is. Yeah. Significantly more yeah, awkward. Yeah, that's permanently <laughs> awkward. That's a relationship ender. Yeah, maybe for the best. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Today's guest is Jeff Clark, Executive Vice President of Roush Yates Engines in Mooresville, North Carolina. Roush Yates builds world-class race engines and is the exclusive Ford Performance engine builder for the NASCAR Cup Series, NASCAR Xfinity Series, and the IMCA, IMSA, IMSA, Michelin Pilot Challenge. You can learn more about Jeff Clark on X, 
You know what X is? Formerly known as Twitter. Right. Uh, at Jeffrey Clark 8 and at RoushYates.com. Jeff like Clark, it. welcome to Oil & Whiskey, man. Cheers nah, if you cheers, got one. Guys, cheers if you don't. Yep, uh, cheers all the way on. around, guys. Man, I'm glad we could uh, glad we could put this together. Yeah, man. Pretty excited and love your shows. I've followed a few of the ones you've done. You guys got a hell of a cast that comes on here. I'm impressed. I appreciate it, man. We're It's very uh, eclectic, that's for sure. Yeah, diverse. We've had some pretty cool, pretty cool dudes. Yeah. A little bit of everything. Much like Damn yourself, right. man. You've had you've had quite the fucking story. Um I'll be I'll have to be honest. I uh I knew of you briefly just with Roush Yates. Um, but I had no idea that you pitted for two of my absolute favorite drivers, but the one being the the, the late and great Davy Allison. Yeah, um, that was uh where we started, man. That was a whole startup for that program and Robert Yates and our whole gang, kind of a bad news bears group that put it together and contending for wins and championships, man. Well, my, my wife's family, um, and my, my mom's family is all from the Hueytown, Alabama area. Um, wow. so we, we lived there for quite some time. So Davy Allison was nothing short of a, of a God in that area. So, um, this is, this is, we, we ran into this before with a few other NASCAR guys yeah. and me and Phil are from the Midwest up yeah. North here, Not just, just of North of Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have any, any of that NASCAR heritage no, here, unfortunately. You, you didn't. No. You, you're missing out. How did you, how did you get into, I mean, this is way back in the day, so take, we, we love to get started at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, how, how early did you know you wanted to get into racing and how did you get in there? So short story, um, I was born in Oak Park, Illinois, right there in Chicago myself. Oh, damn. And uh, as a kid, watched racing on TV Love watching the stock car racing and F1. That's about all you could pick up on the three channels we had back then. Two, five, seven, ended and up, nine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ended up, uh, I remember that elf car with the six wheels on it. That was always impressive to me, you know, seven, eight years old. But long story short, we ended up moving to Charlotte. That was my dad's hometown. And one of my neighborhood friends ended up being Doug Yates, uh, Robert Yates' son. And it was just by chance we were friends. Um, as we got older, you know, working on go-karts, mini bikes, stuff in the backyard racing, ended up uh, going to the race shop one time. And then, you know, the light came on. It was like, oh my God, look at all the stuff here. Um, equipment, cars. And it was one of the older engine shops. Uh, Robert had his own independent shop building engines for a lot of different people. Um, not sure if many people know, but Richard Petty, you know, famous for his 200 wins. Uh, Robert, built his 199th win and the 200th win there at Daytona. And uh, really cool to, to see that happening as a kid growing up. And then Robert wanted us all to try to go to school before we went right into the racing shops. That was our addiction to go follow him. And it was our dream to be, you know, following his footsteps. Um, but out of school, um, I was actually in the insurance industry. He was an underwriter for my family's business. And would go over on the weekends and every spare moment to help out, you know, get the pit box ready for the weekend. Um, Davey was our driver at the time. And a uh, guy named Jake Elder, Suitcase Jake, pulled me off a ladder one summer, took me in the parking lot, showed me how to work the jack. And said, you played sports in high school and college. If you can figure this out, we really need you to be on our pit crew next year. And, man, that was like, you know, getting the key to the, the, the golden, you know, path. 
I worked my ass off that whole summer getting ready and it all boiled down to a tryout with Robert Yates and the stopwatch. And uh, if you want me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that story unless yeah. you guys want to talk a little no, bit. Go off. This, Derek, we ain't got no agenda, man. This is just a conversation. <laughs> How old were you at this point? So right out of college, 21 years old. Um, I'm painting the shop to pay off some credit cards. And Jake Elder pulls me up the ladder and says, son, come out here in the parking lot. Robert Yates builds our engines. He drives our truck. He's our jack man. He's our part-time crew chief. He does everything. Um, his wife told me we need to get him off pit road. It's too dangerous out there. You're young, courageous. Let me show you how it works. So literally for an hour and a half, middle of August heat, I'm running around a car, jacking the right side up. And you're getting time from the time you, you drop the right side, how fast you can get to that left side and get it up. And hauling ass, working my footwork and working the jack. And this is all new to me, right? So Robert was like my other dad growing up, really, um, you know, uh, you know, just voice of reason, um, pretty intimidating, you know, coming from his motorsports background and pedigree. So he got out there at the stopwatch and he said, tell you what, go get a drink of water. When you come out, we're going to time you. And if you're fast enough, we'll think about letting you practice with the real pit crew. So I went and got a drink of water and I'm coming out and he's kind of hyping me up. He said, all right, you give me your best time. You ready? Yes, sir. So Jack, the right side of the car up and he says, go and hit stopwatch button. So I dropped the right side and I'm going around the car. And as I go around the front of the car, my feet come out from underneath me and it never happened all day, but my feet come out and I go down hard as hell. My elbow grinded in the asphalt, but I, I pop right up and get to the left side, jack the car up and man, I'm dejected. Like I just screwed up my, one and only tryout for this position. I'll never get on pit road now. And Robert said, Hey, come here, come here. Let me show you something. He said, look at the front of the car. And when I looked at the nose of the car, there was like kitty litter everywhere. And I was like, Robert, I said, this wasn't here earlier. I've practiced all day. I have not fallen. I don't know where that came from. And he goes, Oh, I know. He said, when you went in to get to drink of water, I threw it down there because it's going to be at the racetrack. <laughs> and he said, I had to find out if you're going to cry about your elbow or you can finish my pit stop. And he said, you're pretty damn fast. Even with the fall, he said, you got the job kid. Damn. So, uh, that's awesome. That's, so that was that's pretty good. Trial, trial by fire. Uh, Robert was very serious, but very fair. Um, very, very smart self-taught guy um, with cylinder head development. A lot of the engineers that were coming into the sport, uh, he really had to educate them on airflow and combustion and, you know, how power really was made in engines. Uh, became very famous for those C3 Yates heads that he put together with Ford. And then everything came together. Um, Jake was a little frustrated with us. He was ready to move on. Larry McReynolds comes into the picture. And we set sail with Davey, uh, started winning races. Uh, I think we lapped the field at the all-star race, uh, dominated the Coca-Cola 600. We won four or five races that year, uh, finished third in points. And then the next year, we were on another really good run. And then he had his accident there at, at Talladega at the, in the helicopter. And it was a whole reset for us. We were just getting running. And that was, as you well know, from Hueytown, that was um, – that was like going to Elvis's funeral. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that in my life with fans hanging off of the overpasses, banners. Um, I mean, I'm talking 20 miles of highway, just yeah. side by side, everybody there paying tribute to Davey. That was that's still so impressive to me to see that impact that he made on everybody from Hueytown. That's something wild. Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was a little kid. I bawled, man. 
bald. Yeah. Cried. Yeah. It was like, he was my hero, you know? Damn. Yes, sir. And they, and y'all showed up thing. I always like, like always put on a show. So you showed up with a damn good looking car always. I mean, chrome wheels, reflective number. I mean, it was just, it was a completely different look. It was the total package. Yeah, it was a total package. It was pumping chest out of like, we're going to be fast, but we're going to damn, we're going to look damn good too doing it. And, yeah. See how that shaped I, you I, as a young boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, shaped you a lot, man. Yeah, right. I remember you talking about the, the chrome wheels. So we go to a test. And again, I'm I'm green as hell at the racetrack at this point. I'm just hired because of the weekend help and my athleticism and showed up. And I, I looked at the car one time and I said, man, it just looks fast. And everybody on the team looked at me like, what do you mean it looks fast? There's chrome wheels and there's reflective numbers. They said, go go somewhere else kid we're gonna show you how a car really goes fast <laughs> so uh but but it was um those those times you just never forgot and bench racing so to say when you had time at the garage before we went on track or it was a rain out had some rain delays just spending time sitting on the benches and during the test sessions you know davy would be there rusty dale senior they'd all come and talk about you know what they're doing the latest fishing rod they had or a new rifle or where they went hunting last and to sit around and hear those discussions as a kid, um, it just, you never forget that. Uh, those are, those are the days in my book of the best racing and and it carried on for a long time and it, and it's kind of reinvented itself with this new car. So it's been fun to be a part of a lot of that. And now kind of one of the older guys in the garage, when I used to be the kid, always listening to everything I could to learn anything I could to make myself better or more competitive on pit road or working on engines when I got my chance. It has to be crazy with you still being in it now. I mean, you, you talk, you hear, you know, hear interviews and you hear stories from people and stuff. Um, but to be in it from back then, and like you said, Robert was driving the truck. I mean, how many people would y'all bring to a race traditionally and compare that to now modern day? Man, we, so when I got hired on full time, I was employee 23 and today Honestly, the numbers per car number are a hundred people. You have a, it's so we were less than twenty five percent, and everybody was utility man. You didn't have one guy specializing in making crush panels, or one guy specializing in a certain part of putting window beds in the car. You know, everybody did a multitude of things to make it work. And uh, then when you go to the track, like your question, you had your five or six guys that would go early. And now it's like 12. And then on race day, we would maybe get to 20. And today, at times before these new uh, roster rules came in, I know teams are bringing 50 to 60 people to the track to support each car. Um, it was crazy, the, the budgets and the requirements to be a top-level team. But, you know, we, we did it with a small group. We knew everything that needed to be done. And we worked a lot of hours. Um, I can tell you, I told Doug, you know, I left left Yates to go to work for the Earnhardt family. And when I got up there, I was staying late at night because a normal night at our shop was like nine o'clock was the early night. If we had to work, we'd stay till midnight or until it was ready to go to the track. And Earnhardt came in my work center as soon as I got there. And it was about six o'clock and I was one of the only ones there. And he said, all right, don't be don't bring that Yates stuff up here. We don't work like that. He said, if you're not smart enough, to, he goes, if you're not smart enough to get your job done by five o'clock. I don't need you. And I'm thinking, I, I understand what you're saying, but there are 30 guys down the road from here that are working their asses off and are going to make a whole lot more horsepower in the hours that we're going home and, and not working. And it was, it was killing me not to work like that. 
um, at the new shop, but he, he didn't want it. He wanted you to be with your family. You take this time. And if you're not smart enough to get it done by five, go find somewhere else to work. So that was, uh, that's, and that's think, Dale senior. That's, that's the man, yeah. the legend. Yes, sir. When I went to work up at his shop, I was working on Steve Park's car, the Pennzoil number one. And then the next year, Dale Jr. went from Xfinity, which was nationwide at the time, to Cup. I was the engine specialist at the track and the jackman on that car. And uh, and then when the rest of those guys from that team, we all bonded and started working. Then we started working the hours and getting ahead. And um, Dale was used to him being at Childress where he was the man. He carried it. He made things happen. And at our shop, we didn't have that guy driving yet. Dale Jr. was still on the way developing. Steve Park was developing. Um, Michael Waltrip came in later. But we didn't have a badass like Dale Sr. wheeling our cars yet. So we had to go to work. And, and I don't think he understood that at the time. He was expecting everybody to be like him. <laughs> and, and there was only one of him. There's only one Michael Jordan, one Babe Ruth, and, and one Dale Earnhardt, right? So... Um, so we started working and, and we did damn good with Dale Jr. We won rookie year. I think we won three races, won the all-star race, which was a big deal. Um, we won, uh, I think Richmond and then when his first one was Texas, that was, that was just phenomenal that rookie year to win three races, including the all-star race. And then it really started to set sail with him. And it was almost like a Davy Allison repeat, um, Got a lot of good, hardworking guys, smart ideas, and it just takes a little time for that chemistry to develop. And then, man, it's, you know, then you set sail, and, it, and it's fun. You, you're addicted to it. You, you work. I mean, you guys know your passion with your cars. It's not work. We're very blessed to be doing what we do. And, of course. And you wish there was more time because uh, you, you want to do more, right? There's always things you want to do that the clock's running out. So uh, I relate. You guys, your cars are beautiful. I want to compliment you on that. that. Uh, I've followed you guys for a long time. Well, I appreciate that. And it's much the same way. I mean, it didn't come by leaving at uh, 4 or 5 o'clock. You know, it was when when other guys were leaving at 4 or 5 o'clock. We were leaving, uh, you know, when the sun came up, something like that. So I had to do it. You reached the point. Yeah, you reached the point where, sure, yeah, you can go home at 6, 7. 7 You know, that's that's an early day, but got to put the work in, man. Got to put the work in. Was uh, was early Dale Jr. at that time when he's coming up from uh, Nationwide Xfinity now, uh, was he as hungry and uh, vested as uh, early Davey was? Yeah, yeah, I think I think very much. And, and both of them had one thing in common. They had dads that were badasses that they were trying to, you know, shine in their eyes, show their dads that they could do this. And, uh, you know, Bobby Allison, you know, before Dell senior came on Bobby Allison, he was pretty badass himself in those days, you know, the days of Bobby Allison, Kelly Yarbrough, um, they were pretty good contenders and, uh, Davey wanted to prove himself that he was going to be the next Allison to carry the legacy. And, and Dale jr. Had the same thing. Dale jr. Wanted to win the championship rookie year so bad. I mean, he pushed us all very hard to, to do something that has not been done. A rookie has never won a championship and, and we felt we could do it. I think we finished fifth in the points that rookie year I have to look back fifth or sixth. And it was just a few races that could have put us into it. The next year we were contending. Um, we were all over our championship battle. Carl Edwards took us out, I think at Atlanta and, uh, that, that killed us. And then we came back and we won at Phoenix and then Homestead was, uh, was our Achilles at the time. Dale Jr. just did not like that track and had trouble running it. 
and uh, we think we finished third that year. But, you know, right out of the box, hungry as could be, hungry as hell. Who was harder to please, uh, Dale Sr. Or, or Bobby Allison? Man, uh, I'd say from the stories, now I never worked for Bobby, but listening to Robert, Bobby was really hard on the guys. Um, it was never good enough. You can make it better. And it wasn't that he was trying to, like, ridicule your work or, or downplay your work. He just knew he could get more out of you. And if he got everything he got out of you, he knew he was going to give everything behind the wheel and, and do things that um, that guys like Earnhardt would learn driving and racing against him to be better. Like, uh, one time I heard this story about Bobby. So they, they came out on a pit stop. Um, air pressures on the cars, tires weren't what he wanted. And uh, he had a short run to try and win this race, and he needed more buildup, which means as tires get hot, you know, they gain they gain size. So he was going off into the corners and literally driving and turning the wheel harder than he should have to scrub the tires into the corners to put more heat in them to get him to build up faster. And at, you know, 180, 190 miles an hour, you know, throwing a car off in the corner like that was unheard of. A little dicey. Um, but, but yeah, but Bobby would do it and he ended up winning that race. Now, Earnhardt many years later heard these stories and he would do the same thing. Um, you know, that was going from bias supply tires to when we first went to radials, they're still trying to figure that out the way it felt. Um, but, you know, the radial tire changed a lot for us and, and settle that kind of, you know, stuff down. But those guys that would push your, your crew hard as you could, because he was going to push that car as hard as he could. Um, it's, it's really neat to look back on that. There's a few guys like that. Um, you know, they come every once in a while. I know uh, today and in, in Kyle Bush catches a lot of crap about his attitude, the way he is, but, you know, that kid is so talented and he drives with a lot of that same drive. I think he's a lot younger when he was having his success. So a lot of that immaturity showed when he would throw his temper tantrums. But if you look back to some of the young Earnhardt stuff, the young Allison stuff, they all had the same stuff. It just wasn't as publicized and right. wasn't was, such a social media. Yeah, it wasn't right? social media. Yeah. Right. With all the so, uh, technology that's come into the world, is the, and there's still a lot of those old school driver tricks that the driver can make that much of a difference from one guy to the next? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still the same thing. There are about five drivers in that garage today that are, Top of the Kyle top Yeah, Kyle Larson's got it. Um, you know, the uh and actually uh Chase Elliott, he's very talented and one that doesn't get enough credit yet, William Byron. Yeah. Um, super talented. He's coming along and that kid came from I racing. And to think that, you know, he did that from, you know, sim racing to the talent he's brought, um, pretty impressive. And I'll tell you a couple others that are coming that are gonna shine later. Um, you know, Logano's doing his thing. He's pretty strong. Kozlowski, they've had their day. But as far as young up-and-comers, um, Noah Gregson and probably Chase Briscoe are your next two to really break out and, and show you some performance. I'd like to see Corey LaJoy get some good equipment. Oh, man. Love Corey, man. Him and his dad, great friends. Uh, my first wife, Shauna Robinson, she drove Xfinity, ARCA, drove one year in Cup. And the joys and us ran around all the time. I remember Corey coming home from the hospital wrapped up in a blanket <laughs> and uh, to see him driving a car. Now it just blows my mind. Makes you feel real old. Right. But um, as far as his grit and hard, He's hard, hard working dude, damn right. Uh, 
great kid and a great driver. I think when he gets in the right seat, it's going to be one of those things, another one of those things that set sail. You're going to see him take off and do great things. Yeah. We had, we had him on the podcast, uh, last year, yeah. early last year, whatever. And, uh, really, really liked him, got to know him a little bit from that interview. And you, you just, somebody you always kind of follow and you can kind of see that hard work and doing with doing what he can with what he's got. And he's, he's gotten himself in some situations where it, it could have gone, could have gone a really good way, you know, uh, that Atlanta race yeah. with him and Larson. Damn, it was so close. And then he's such a garage favorite. I don't know if you remember when Dale Earnhardt won his one and only Daytona 500, the whole garage lined up to, you know, high five him and say congrats. Didn't matter if you were running a, a Ford or whatever other brand, you went out to, you know, pay your respects because what he had worked so hard to get. Um, I think Corey will have that same type of, you know, uh, support from everybody in that garage. Proud of him to win a race and, That's awesome. and be a garage favorite kind of guy he grew up in that garage he's playing football on the infield during the races when he's a kid you know now he's driving a car well I, we're going to get into some of the modern day obviously about roush yates and you know it's what everyone wants to listen to but i got a, another question about the old old school because you're hung I, on this bobby else well no i'm 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 always fascinated with what if whether it be a sport or industry or whatever fascinated with the growth and progression of t- over time when something especially that's been around for this long right um yeah. and seeing it grow from the driver hauling the race car on his pickup truck to go yeah. to a race you know to then having a big rig right because in 91 y'all thought y'all were high cotton right you thought you had your shit together right y'all were like oh, nobody's yeah. running this shit who was the first team to really start doing it what we see as my or close to modern day area something you know Hendrix level somebody that's got a that has got a truck driver that's got a bus driver for the for the uh, driver so who came in with so a shit ton of who, money yeah, well, who came in with a shit spending a shit ton of money exactly yeah. where it started oh, going because I mean now you got chefs you've got stuff like that I mean sure. y'all didn't have no chefs then would y'all have a, a charcoal grill and some hot dog weenies or some bologna or something hell no we, we had now. slick meat in the, we had slick meat in the cooler we didn't even have refrigerators in our truck these we guys don't even know what slick meat is you don't know yeah, what slick meat is no that's bologna, potted meat. I mean, that's going to okay. be any. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah you're Olive you're lucky to have that. That's a learning um, experience for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Robert had this philosophy, and there's a couple really cool things about Robert. So so when you got to the shop, you never backed your car into a spot because you're too worried about leaving. He said, uh, He said, I got some rules around here. If, you, if you're backing in in the morning, you're not, you're not worried about getting your ass in the shop and going to work. You're worried about going home that night. So I don't ever see someone backing that's into good. a car. I like, spot. I like that. That's like really that good. Line. I've never and, heard that uh, before. He also said, now I'll pay your speeding ticket if you're going to work, but on the way home, you're on your own. <laughs> Dude, it's funny. That, like, the old guy, the mentality and what they say, it, like the longevity that, like the impact that had, you can't do that today. Like there's a uh, an Indeed complaint about me saying that the owner told me if he can get his ass here in the winter, then I should be able to too. Well, fuck yeah! <laughs> like, like, you know, like you know, Dale Earnhardt said that like, you get exactly your fucking right. ass to work. Yeah, you know, but you, you oh, can't. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, times have changed. Yeah, and it. We had uh, the at the new thing. shop at Earnhardt. We had this. It's it's like we call it the the fishbowl. It's this big glass uh, room. It had all these machines in it with you know bridge ports and lathes and mills and then we had the assembly bays and then we had a little break room and it was a long hallway. And uh, Earnhardt would always come walking up the hallway right before break. He's going up to his office. 
But one day you always heard his boots clicking down the hallway and you knew like, all right, straighten up, make sure you're looking around, make sure the place looks nice. He's coming down the hallway and he's walking by the break room. And man, all of a sudden you heard his boots like slide. Like he came to an abrupt halt and I'm like, oh shit, what do we do? He came walking in the break room and there was a kid sitting there. He had a, uh, he had like a Pepsi like bottle in front of him. He walked over and put his arm around the kid's neck said get your bottle let's walk outside he said you know sun drops what i drink here and, and we do coca cola and sun drop and he said if you come with that in your hand you don't need to come back he walked into his car <laughs> made him put the pepsi in his car he said if i ever see that again you're gonna leave with that in your car and never come back we clear Damn. so he's very loyal brand loyalist but he stopped right there to make a point don't bring pepsi in my shop but um was there a sponsor but on board at that point? Or? Oh, Better. yeah. He was a Coca-Cola driver, and, and he always did those sun drops, that commercial where um, he, he, like a bunch of kids on tricycles said, man, you never want to race that Earnhardt kid for a sun drop. It was, like, it was a whole yeah. story about that. But um, to your point on the money coming in, I would say Rick Hendrick was the first guy to start putting his guys on airplanes. Um, back then, we drive you – know, 15 guys in a 10 passenger van you get to know each other real well when you're driving to dover and pocono and um that was our mo we we drive everywhere because we didn't have the budget and rick was putting his guys on at the time king air you know twin prop planes they get home they're fresh he'd fly his pit crew in on race day morning um our pit crew guys were driving in pretty tired uh but we realized as money came in that we better start stepping up or we're going to get left behind and competing so um also was the first one to put motorhomes at the track for the driver to rest and not have to run all over the place and you know autograph sessions are always at the racetrack so stay longer sign more autographs we can sign more sponsors and by the way there's a motorhome when you get done you go sleep at the motorhome and it grew into this whole motorhome city. If you guys have ever come to the races, there's a driver owner lot and there's like a hundred motorhomes that all the drivers and car owners stay there. And, um, the sponsorship kept growing because it, it cost money to support and compete like that. And went from King airs to Lear jets to, we got regional jets that fly the guys around now that probably own regional jets. Uh, Earnhardt was always the leader at that. He always had the nicest airplanes and always stayed at the nicest hotels. And that was his way to attract the best talent to his teams. Well, talking about Motorhome City, we, we've talked about it for years, but maybe this year's the year I get I get Phil and Jeremy both. We're going to go down to Talladega, and we're going to camp in the infield, and we're going to be there for the whole weekend, right? Because you I, ain't never it, been. I've got experience. I've got experience the culture. You, yeah, you, is, you've uh, never I'm experienced in, nothing. I'm embarrassed. Like the infield at Talladega. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't. Friday and Saturday haven't. night. Yeah. yeah. So. So I'll give you a, a quick explanation. Have you guys ever been to Sturgis, the bike rally? Yeah. Haven't been there. Never no. been there. Yeah, right, we're you just some... like some sheltered Yankees, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Sturgis bike rally and Mardi Gras, New Orleans. You mix those two together, and that's Talladega Infield. Damn. <laughs> yeah, you ain't. Yeah, I'm telling you what, it's uh, you ain't never seen nothing like you've been see. So, so well, Hendricks was the first one to put the motorhome in there. Did did him spending that money, making those drivers happy? building that prominence, getting the bigger sponsors, did that start the ball rolling? Did that bring the money in to all the teams, right? For, and, and, and that's what yeah. kind of grown. I, I, hadn't, I have not heard that portion that, I mean, at that point, he was spending his own money before he got the big sponsors, right? Yeah, he was taking the dealership money, and that's one thing. He was very fortunate. He had those dealerships, and, and he had that extra money to put into the racing, and it, it made sense. You know, it's advertising for his car dealers. Um but like I was talking about with Earnhardt, 
way he would try to recruit people with the nice planes and nice hotels. Well, Rick Hendrick was showing you how, you know, he was doing the same thing to get the best drivers. If he had the best drivers, then the rest would all fall in place. And uh, that that's what he would do. And he'd take the dealership money and, and use it over on the cars and, you know, all the way back from, you know, Tim Richmond, Jeff Bodine, the beginnings of it, all the way up to when, you know, start growing into the younger drivers, um, you know, Daryl Waltrip, Ricky Rudd. And then obviously the whole phenomenon with Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson. I mean, he was the right guy that put it on the plate, you know, put your money out there and, and, and hire and spend the money, get the best driver. Well, where did, where did modern day Roush Yates really start taking off sides racing? Because I mean, personally I'll sit here and we'll talk about old racing all night long. Right. But, yep. but the Roush Yates now today, modern day 2024, is a business completely unlike anything that anybody thought that they would be at, I would assume, right? In in the Absolutely. 90s, right? Um, NASCAR and motorsports in general is just a, a, a portion of what y'all are doing. Correct. So go back to 1990, Robert Yates had a cylinder head that was 50 horsepower better than everybody in the garage. Um, Earnhardt was raising hell about it. He goes to the NASCAR trailer. 5-0? Five zero, and everybody. If you raced heads up with Davey, or when Ernie Irvin came on, you could tell how you're getting pulled in the straightaways. And there's a famous radio check from uh, Earnhardt. He got on Richard Childress. He said, "Listen," he said, uh, "He said I got Davey covered in the corners, but I can't beat Robert Yates going down the straightaway. You got to help me." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what happened was NASCAR hold all the different Ford guys at a time and everybody had different shapes and sizes and round ports, square ports, rectangular ports. They wanted one design and everybody voted unanimous that Robert had the best head, a design that he wanted Ford to adopt that, create templates. And Robert had to provide that to every Ford team. Now, back then we were hand grinding and porting all these heads. It'd take about three months between all the grinding, go back to heat treat, harden them and bring them back out. Um, we were trying to figure out how in the hell we we're going to make cylinder heads for every Ford team in the garage. And that's when he went and bought his first CNC machine. He bought a more sake. You think about an MV 40, 1990, brought it in and started porting cylinder heads. And we were pissed because we had to give our cylinder head to everybody. Um, do you remember the race at Michigan where Daryl Jarrett was in the Wood Brothers car and he beat Davey one, two. That was the first time we got beat by our own cylinder heads. And everybody that bought these heads and put them on engines, I'm talking at the time you had Junior Johnson was a Ford, Penske was a Ford, Alan Kowicki, the Wood Brothers, um, Jack Roush. They buy these cylinder heads and immediately pick up 50 horsepower. And now all of a sudden we're racing our same power level. But what Robert had to have meetings internally with us to make sure we understood that that same machine was going to help us get way ahead of that. And we went from, that was a time where most people were 650 horse. We were right around 700. And we took off on a run from that point for the CNC machine. We got to 750 real quick. We got to 800 horsepower real quick, 850 real quick. We're, we're jumping in. And this is all you know, through cylinder head design? Cylinder head and cam, cam design. At this point too, this is when NASCAR is at the height of their, their push is, more of the yeah. homologation, right? They're wanting, right. because you're having blowouts, right? You're having guys that are just kicking people's asses, right? And they're, oh, 
Oh yeah. And ever maybe basically since then till now, their focus has been on evening the playing field, whether whether yep. it be reducing cost or whether the thing is like these cars yep. need to be as close to the same as possible, right? So they come in, they're like, this head's either done or it's for everybody. I, exactly. I got another question is when y'all are building these heads for other teams, I've always wondered this. I'm thinking the are there are heads, your heads. Yeah. Yeah, there's gotta be, there's gotta be the one that the little, little R little notched in the thing is like, these are, these are there's a little different tool path. Yeah, you got Monday <laughs> motors and, you know, Friday motors and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the old school of it, absolutely. And then you had engine builders, um, you know, so if you go back to the day when you had 40 teams in the garage, every team had their own engine builder. And they had their own, you know, network of part suppliers and cam grinds and pistons and their own recipe, how they built their engine. And, you know, everybody's engine was a little different, but it always catered to their drivers. Some drivers wanted bottom end to come up off the corner. Other guys wanted mid-range to top end to just send it into the corner. Everybody had a little different strategy. And when you had days where you put it all together is when you saw somebody, you know, lap the field, so to say. But but um, what happened was... CNC technology came into everybody's garage. Everybody started buying these machines to make parts, pulleys. You're redesigning a lot of things in your engine, in your cars, your, your chassis spindles. So all this technology is coming in. We're hiring more and more engineers to make the cars aerodynamically more competitive, more downforce. I mean, it was just like the, the height of spending. So that first year of Davey with us, we barely had like $850,000, $900,000 to race off that year very quickly and i'd say every year from 1990 on the budget doubled went from you know 800 grand to almost 2 million to 4 million to 6 million to 8 million and in the height of racing we were all spending 40 50 million dollars a year on performance and hiring some super intelligent guys from you know the best universities from astrophysics a lot of phd guys got into it at that point um, it, it was F1 racing that technology level in, in little old North Carolina. And it was amazing to see that, that happening. Uh, the cars were going so damn fast, like the two mile tracks, we're sending them off in the corner at 233 miles an hour. Um, they didn't, they couldn't feel the mechanical grip. They Harvick said it best. It's like flying a damn airplane off in the corner and hoping it sticks when it, <laughs> when the mechanical grip came back to it. So, what I'm leading up to is all this technology and speed got to a point where it was dangerous. Um, we started having wrecks where cars were ending up in the grandstands, parts were ending up in the grandstands, fans getting hurt. So they slowed us down with a, a, a engine rule. Uh, they started restricting power, um, restricting our cam from a flat tappet to a roller cam and then the gear ratio. And then the biggest change, which led to the new technology at Roush Yates was running engines twice. When we had to run an engine twice, we weren't consuming as many parts. So we had all this capacity on our CNC machines. And that one CNC machine we started with for the cylinder heads had now grown to 12, 15 machines. Um, at this point, we're about 25 different machines. And now we've got idle time because we're not using all the parts. Doug had the vision to start looking for military contracts. And, and Doug Yates is Robert's son super intelligent young man, uh, very visionary, just like his dad. And he tasked a lot of us to go out and find, you know, a contract that could fill a machine up in the off hours to keep, you know, guys working. He never wanted people to lose jobs with all these changes in the rules. And I give him a lot of credit for that. So five years ago, we ventured into 
open industry manufacturing. We ended up with a contract to make the radio housings for the Hummer rate, Hummer vehicles. So every Hummer has a dashboard radio. Um, we build the center section and the two heat sinks for the Hummers. And then we do the backpack radio. And it started with that. And now we've got close to 80 machines, um, 115 employees that do nothing but aerospace, defense, and medical products. Um, when, when one time the engine components was the entire floor, um, it's less than 15% of our floor now. Everything else is aerospace and defense. And that's what truly led us into this new era of business, kept our employees working. But the cool part, we learned so much doing these other projects. We bring it back to racing to make our engine parts better. And uh, that's that's the whole core of it. What can we learn building satellite parts or rocket engine parts for SpaceX that can make our, our engines better in our, in our racetrack. So that's, that, that's great to hear that like truly the government is doing something for us, right? Like it, it's, right. it's paying back ultimately. Yeah. yeah I'd, like to pay, I'd still like to pay a little less, but <laughs> I got, I, I really, I got two questions. I got to ask them both because I'm, I'm stupid and I'll forget. So do you ever sit around at night, whether it's having a glass of whiskey or a cigar, whatever your vice is, whether it's you driving home and think about, where you're at today, the company, what they're building from back to slipping in that fucking easy dry, you know, oh, yeah. on the jack man and the hard work that you've put in to where, I mean, you started at the bottom, right? Oh yeah. And now, now you're walking around and I guarantee you, like, there's not many people listening. So you can admit it. There's a bunch of fucking smarter people that work there, you know, <laughs> than, than all of us. Right. Uh, oh yeah. And then do you, how do you impart that on entry level guys that are coming in to work there about being patient and working hard and you have no idea six months might seem like a long time, but I promise you in 10 years, it seems like it's flown by. You're, you're, you're all over it. You're exactly right. So we have this thing we call boot camp, and that's when you're in teardown, when you're taking engines apart after the race and your hands are in a Varsol tank all, all day long and you're, you know, especially the wintertime, your hands are all cracked and bleeding. Um, but you learn how to build an engine by taking it apart. You are the first one to put your hands and eyes on that engine after a race that may have found a, a defect or a flaw that could save us from a failure next week. Um, we all started there. Doug started when he was five years old. He was free labor for Robert. <laughs> I didn't get I didn't get to get started until I was right out of college. And And a lot of our friends were like, you guys went to college. You're going to be grease monkeys. We don't, we don't understand what the hell you're doing. You got a degree. You got these insurance companies and a lot of engineering opportunities for Doug. What are you doing with this racing? It was, it was in our blood. It, we, we couldn't get away from it. We were addicted to it. And we didn't think anything different about it. We dove in whatever job needed to be done from, you know, we always joke, if you, if you clean the bathroom really good, you're going to lead to your next opportunity. You're going to get to work on the engines. You're going to take them apart. You're going to wash all the pistons, the, the oily, dirty parts. And then if you really work good, you can get a job in the machine shop or then eventually get to build engines, put them together. And then running the dyno is like the pinnacle. When you're, when you're pulling a throttle on 800 horsepower, um, it's just, there's nothing like that. Um, so to your point on how do you, how do you relay that to kids? You make sure they understand. And we've got pictures in this room I'm in right now back when Doug and I were the guys in the mechanic shirts in the in the parts washers washing parts and, and if you look at our first davy allison daytona 500 win there's these two kids that are pale white because we hadn't seen sunlight in probably six months 
black rings under her eyes because we've been working 18, 20 hours a day. But the biggest damn smiles you'll ever see on two kids' faces winning that Daytona 500. And we still have our rings to prove it. Like we were there and what that meant to us. And it's like anything, your first kid or your first experience at anything, that right there, we were hooked. And we never, never deviated. But try to share that with kids. And, and we do that today. When we win big races, we match the teams and we buy everybody a ring. Uh, everybody from the teardown guy to the engineers to our accountants, the secretaries, everybody gets a ring. And we've, Doug and I both have the same count of Daytona 500 wins. Now, my path was a little different because I went over to the Chevrolet side, uh, two wins with Michael Waltrip, the one with Dale Jr. But it's amazing. We both have 10 Daytona 500 rings, which of all my friends in the garage, I don't know anybody else that's won 10 Daytona 500s. But, um, but, there's a lot of other people in our company that when we win one at Roush Yates, everybody gets a ring because they contributed some way or shape form. So that's, that's one way um, we do bonuses. And again, bonuses back in the day got really extravagant when the money was really crazy. Um, it's, there's still a bonus is a bonus. You should never expect it. And it's nice to receive it. Um, and they're still reasonable. We do bonuses with our guys and girls here and, and take care of everybody. So, um, those are the ways you keep people motivated. Um, but it starts with your leader, right? Robert was a hell of a leader. Jack Roush, a hell of a leader. Two Hall of Fame guys for NASCAR. Um, Doug carries the torch now for us. And all the rest of us at the mid-level are trying to be good leaders and shepherds of the company to keep it on track, make sure we do good business. Uh, don't waste money or time. Um, Jack and Robert. Man, they were arch enemies, and, and we can talk about how they they put the whole thing together with Roush and Yates. Um, man, they hated each other. They would wreck each other in rental cars leaving the racetrack back in the day because they hated each other so damn much. I'm gonna it need was, to hear more about that, like in particular. Oh. <laughs> yeah, little yeah, days just, of thunder. Just, just one, of the, one of the best examples of that. <laughs> oh hell yeah! There were some years that the rental companies wouldn't let the race team guys have rental cars because we damn tore them up so damn bad, and and it was right before I came into the sport. Um, when I got there, we were being a little more respectful because <laughs> we were working for, for Robert and he was more like a dad figure to us and his days of running hard kind of slowed down when we got there. And, and he wasn't the guy in the bar. He was the guy going to bed early so he could beat the guys that hung out in the bar all night. Now he would have a beer and he'd celebrate good fashion when it was right. But he was always about, you know, work hard and, uh, you play hard later. And when we play hard, we play hard, but. It's usually after a championship or we've done something that's, you know, momentous, not just going out every night and getting hammered at the at the bar because we're out of town. Um, he he made it a point that you stay focused. And uh, he said one other thing he would always say, uh, he said, you guys like to go out and beat on your chest all night. He said, but the day you screw up on one of my race cars is your last day working on my race car. He said, so stay focused and we'll celebrate at the end of the year when it's right. And when we'd have year-end parties, we'd have year-end parties. I mean, they'd go <laughs> about a day and a half. But, so so uh, whoever produced Days of Thunder, they obviously did their research. If, because there was a pretty solid rental car scene in that where they just thrashed. It was based on true events. That's, yeah, that's factual. That, that was real deal. That, that was Jeff Bodine and, and Tim Richmond. That was a real deal. <laughs> uh, I hear that story from Mike Helton. So Mike Helton was... You know, a young guy in the sport at that time, but he was running Bristol Motor Speedway for the France family before he, you know, he climbed the ladder to become the CEO of NASCAR. But he, he'll tell us about that story where those two guys were tearing up each other's cars at the racetrack and 
to the point they couldn't finish races and he wanted it to come to an end. So he had him come down to Daytona and he made it a point to put him in the same rental car so they could kind of hash it out before they got to dinner. Well, they, there's no way in hell he's going to get in a rental car with the other guy. So he got in the other one and they're racing to the hotel for the dinner. And that's real deal. I mean, down on the beach, beating the shit out of each other. And that's, that's a real story, man. Dude, that is, that, that's unbelievable. Like the re- rental cars are amazing. Like they granted, there's never going to be a, like a full feature film done on us. And we don't, we don't have the funds to do cosmetic damage to the rental cars. But oh, we have mechanical mechanically. Damage. We've done cosmetic damage. We have, just fix it before we bring it back. Right. But we mechanically thrashed them. But, uh, you, you know, Kyle Tucker from Detroit speed. Oh, great. Good, good right. friend of mine. Kyle, yes, Kyle Tucker's an awesome dude. Right. And we, I think we should air this. It's been long enough that like the world should know about this. I think we brought it up with him. Did we? Yeah. we oh, it's Kyle Tucker drives this the HHR. Sh- well, Ky- yeah, yeah. Kyle Tucker drives the shit. Out of a race car, right? But he can't drive a fucking rental car to save his life. (laughs) Oh, he fucking Phil was in the car with him, right? And he piled up that. Yeah, we were leaving dinner and we're driving, and (laughs) road merges, and Kyle's going straight. I'm in the back seat. I'm like, uh, "Hey, Kyle, Kyle, he's got to see it. Like he's got to see it coming." Kyle, boom, blast the median. (laughs) Like it's nothing, just unfazed. Like the whole car just was rolling everywhere oh, yeah he drops you off at the hotel to get out and like one tire's down to like 10 pounds of air and <laughs> fucking rims full of yeah. <laughs> the next yeah, morning we- they're uh their rigs right behind ours and we just hear someone just beating the shit out of a piece of metal <laughs> walk back there the chevy hhr is on a jack straight tires <laughs> off and they got a sledgehammer and they're pounding the wheel out behind their 53 foot feather light stack <laughs> oh yeah yeah countless countless stories of that one um i'll tell you one about robert Yates and, and Jack Roush, they're at Richmond. And uh, Robert's cars were really fast. And Ford was, you know, the halo that we everybody worked under. And you were supposed to share data with them. And a lot of times you maybe not told them the whole truth uh, about what you had under your car as far as springs and setup. Well, I guess one of Jack's cars, I think Martin Martin out qualified Davey, and it just pissed Robert off. And as we're leaving, Robert's in a, I think he's like in a, a crown victoria or maybe a lincoln town car and he's got his wife carolyn yates in the passenger seat and jack's trying to merge like forces away into traffic and robert just cleaned him out took the whole nose radiator everything off the front of that car just drove right out of the tunnel dragging jack's car along and then when they got to the tunnel it scraped jack's car off at the tunnel entrance on the on the big guardrail <laughs> and jack still tells that story he said yeah i don't really care for robert a whole lot but i love doug and he said once we got to working together we learned about all each other and we, we became good friends but uh but that's the kind of stuff that went down man they were they were really big competitors and then i think uh 03 toyota toyota announcers are coming to the sport and ford's in a big panic like we're spending millions of dollars with jack on engine development we're spending millions of dollars with robert we need to merge the engine companies so we compete with Toyota because they're coming with a big checkbook. And so they asked them to sit down and have a meeting. And they're like, do you not realize we hate each other? Like, there's no way in hell this is going to work. So Doug was able to get both of them to one of the motorhomes to sit down for a meeting. And, uh, and, and Jack started. He said, Robert, I'll just start out by telling you, I don't care for you a whole lot. I don't <laughs> like the way you treated me over the years. And he said, I'll just get that out right now. And he said, uh, he said, you know, you don't have an education. You, you, you did a you know, diesel school. Um, you know, I'm an engineer by education. And he was really proud of that. And Robert said, yeah, but, you know, we kick your ass in horsepower every time we talk about it. So let's figure out how to make this work. And, and they got through it. And through the talking, realized they had the same birthday. 
um, they were both what we call nail straighteners. And uh, what a nail straightener is in our book, if you got a house project and you're building a deck or you're building something and, and you bend a few nails, don't just reach in that box with a new nail. Take the hammer, straighten that bent nail and use it. They both had that same philosophy. And once that all came out on the table and they had Doug to be the glue between them um, and they could both focus on the race cars, man, it was it was like a, a deal from heaven. So that was 04, the first year. Um, we go to Daytona. We put a Roush car and a Yates car in the front row at Daytona. And then we win the championship with Kurt Busch. So it was it was a really good program. Ford was proud that we were able to put that together and immediate success. And, and Doug still runs the engine company today because of it. And Toyota so, was out there that year? Yeah, that was the first year Toyota came to the cup level. How'd that They'd feel? Been working, it was, yeah, that they, was Juan Pablo, right? Yeah, they had Juan Pablo and some cars. Michael Waltrip Racing was the big one that we said defected. They took on Toyota, but you think back if you're a business guy they got a one hell of a paycheck to do that yeah so and you know you got to also think nascar good old boy sport man what the hell are they bring in toyota why didn't they get dodge to come back why are we bringing toyota this japanese automaker <laughs> um you know when it comes down to cubic dollars uh, they were coming in strong they had already been in indycar they had been an off-road truck they'd been an f1 even and nascar was the pinnacle to say they'd made it and they were going to spend whatever it took to be a part of it. And, you know, they came in with Joe Gibbs Racing and Michael Waltrip Racing to start. And uh, and they did a good job. I'll give them credit. They did really good marketing. Um, they started with the truck series. I don't know if you remember Daryl Waltrip doing the, yeah. the commercials where he's driving around the house and trenching up the yard. But they grabbed a, a local you know, hometown favorite like Daryl Waltrip, and it started getting people to, you know, embrace Toyota. And – Nine times out of 10, you might have a Ford or Chevy truck in the driveway, but your wife or somebody in the family has got a Toyota because they run forever. You know, they're economical. So they finally made their way in. And then when Kyle Busch hit the scene, man, it just took off. I mean, that kid was phenomenal, all the wins and the success they've had. But it's always been focused around Joe Gibbs. Uh, I think uh, the one with Truex with uh, Furniture Row out in Colorado, they just outspent everybody that year to win that championship. And, and Truex is a hell of a driver. So um, Toyota did their job. They invested. They they kept a lot of people working. When, you know, Chevrolet yeah. kind of consolidated, they got rid of Oldsmobile, got rid of Buick. They went to one brand. Um, you know, Toyota picked up a lot of jobs that would have been people out of work. So, you know, I, I appreciate them being here for that. Um, and, they, and they do a good job. They're respectful of the track. But – damn, they spend some money. They make it hard on the rest of us trying to keep up. It's, it, I want to circle back to what you said about, you know, Jack's, you know, kind of looking down his nose at, at, at Robert about education and stuff like that, because I, I didn't know it was 04. I didn't, I knew it was early two thousands. Cause I remember it, um, being down there. I remember being, you know, in the South and you looked at Robert Yates as like one of yours, right? And you looked at right. the Allisons, you know, and you looked at everything that Yates and the Wood Brothers. I mean, Wood Brothers and Yates, and it was kind of like it was a family. They raced against each other. Oh, but, yeah. So you kind of took care, I mean, from the South, you kind of had that sense of pride. Where you looked at Jack Roush as kind of this, like, uppity Yankee, you know, that you know, thought he oh, knew yeah. everything and stuff like that. And that was when you saw the merger on the outside looking in. It's like, how the – this isn't going to work. <laughs> Like and it, you're kind of pissed going. off, you know, like and and it's oh, funny yeah. how our perception in the South of that was was pretty accurate of exactly what what it was, but then they made it work out. That's that's 
that's amazing to hear that because that's what we felt. Like, what the fuck? Is Jack? Oh yeah. I mean, these Jack Roush don't need to be fucking around with Robert Yates. Robert Yates is the man. These are like family, like dinner conversations in the cell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it's absolutely family dinner conversations in the South. Talking about yeah, Robert Yates and, and Jack Roush. I'm just Roush. trying to figure it out, man. We were like, Dad, how was work? No, NASCAR. <laughs> NASCAR rules the South. Still does, man. Still does. It, it, you know, so Robert, so Robert grew up in a very large family. Um, he's got a twin brother, Richard. Um, they were the youngest of nine children, and their their dad was a uh, preacher, a Baptist preacher, and all the brothers and sisters were in the ministry. They do mission work abroad. They were always in the church and, and Robert and Richard are much younger and they were always hanging out the drag strip, the hot rod and cars and getting arrested on the weekends. And they were in mm. trouble all the time. So Robert was about to get failed out of high school and also thrown out of Charlotte for all the speeding tickets. And one of his sisters up in Winston-Salem grabbed him and brought him into their home made him go to a vocational school, um, went to, you know, school every day. And the thing is, when he went to the vocational, got his GED, made straight A's because his sister was sitting on his, on, on top of him, making sure he did it. And then when he went to um, uh, Wilson Tech, which is a small vocational college up right outside of Winston-Salem, he went into diesel technology and he learned how to work on tractor engines and Caterpillar and, and all those things and went to work for a Caterpillar dealer uh, here in Charlotte, and that was about the time Holman Moody came into really its prominence with Ford. And one of the guys at the diesel center said, hey, uh, you don't need to waste your time here working on tractors out in the field. You need to go over that Holman Moody. You're smart. You know you know your math, your science, your calculus. You're very intelligent. They need people like that building engines. So he went over there to work in the air gauge department, and that was basically fitting bearings and rods for blocks and, and uh, for, you know, connecting rods. And very quickly, he was out working everyone, staying late. So it was him, Waddell Wilson, a few other legendary engine guys were there learning their craft. And Robert just climbed the ladder so fast there. And then when Holman Moody shut down, Junior Johnson snatched him up, said, hey, you're coming up here to build engines for us. We heard you got a really good engine package. And that's where it took off for him. But he, he learned the basics, the math, the, the calculus, and he understood timing of valves and, and camshaft design probably way before anybody else did and was really making huge cylinder pressure, which is horsepower in the 70s and 80s. And then he learned how to make it live by putting the right oil and the right you know textures and coatings on the parts. And then uh, it was all self-taught, though, is what I'm trying to say. It was all self-taught. And then you know Jack comes in, like you said, the cranky Yankee from Michigan and knows everything because he's got an engineering textbook and he's got a building full of engineers to fill him with all kinds of ideas. And I'll give Jack credit when he was doing the road racing stuff, the, the, the Grand Am stuff, and then Trans Am, he dominated. And he won that, that Trans Am championship 10 years in a row. Uh, I mean, Pratt & Miller Engineering was formed by three engineers that left Roush to go do the, the Chevrolet deal for Corvette. So, you know, he was the home bed for a lot of, Think about an NASCAR world down here in the South. Jack Roush was doing the same thing up there with road racing and giving guys opportunities. So he had a big, you know, follower group up there. And when he came to NASCAR, he was just different. He was a Yankee, like you said, wasn't well accepted by us. But when those two got together and the engineering minds and the, the genius they both had blended, man, it was it was amazing 
Um, the first year, everybody thought we were going to run the Yates engines at Daytona because the big, you know, Daytona power Robert had, and then they'd run Jack's engines, dealer tracks because of the fuel mileage and the durability. And Doug sat everybody down in a room and said, all right, I want everybody's best practices. I want to know the best ring package, the best bearings, everything the best is going to be on the table. And we're going to decide what a Roush and Yates engine is. And we're going to build the same engine every week as a spec. And then in the parallel path, we can develop and bring new ideas. But we've got, you know, 10 teams that want engines. If one guy's the best engine builder here and he's got his own secret recipe, the other other drivers are going to fall behind. We got to deliver the same to everybody to make this work. So that's how it started in 04, and it's still that way today. Every team from Penske, Stuart Haas, the Roush teams, they all are within about 1% or less which when we were at 900 horsepower, they're within nine horsepower. Um, and today they're within four and a half, five horsepower. Um, it's pretty amazing to build engines that consistent every week. Um, the power has been limited through the rules with the restrictor plate or the tapered spacer. So the thing we really work on is where we put that power, if it's low end, mid range or top end for which tracks we're going to. And then the biggest thing we work on is acceleration rate. How do we make it ramp up as fast as we can? So that's that's the 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 I guess the targets every week is acceleration and then um, putting the power at the RPM band where they can utilize it the most at each track. That's gonna be like impossible mindset to get through is you're building the power plant for your competitors while trying to beat them and make sure that you're all on the same level. <laughs> like how do you how do you preach that to yourself and then sell it to the whole team to get everybody on board? Yeah. So. The, the easiest thing was we got out of our race cars. So we don't have cars anymore ourselves. Um, and Doug is very well trusted in the garage for, for meeting that power platform for everyone. And there's a contract. Everybody leases an engine. You don't own the engine as a customer. You lease it. And within your contract, if you think you're being slighted on power, you can call for an audit at any time and have your engineer sit in on the dyno runs and look at all the books of all the other engines that went out that week. Um, whenever we have an engine that's off on performance, we will find, if we can't find anything in the engine, like a cam lobe going down, or let's say a spark plug's gone bad or something electronic, um, we usually will dive into drivetrain and we'll find out somewhere in the driveline, there's something going bad or the wrong exhaust system was put into the car. There was a big deal back when we were shaping the aerodynamics under the car as much as we were over the car. So... To give you an example, we were shaping oil pans. Instead of an oil pan being flat, it would have taper into it to create downforce under the car. And then the the runners, so you got exhaust ports and a V8, each side, you know, four runners coming out. When it came down, instead of being tucked nice and tight on top of each other, we'd fan it out four wide to create a wing under the car. And that was creating downforce. And then when it went to the tailpipe, the tailpipe was really crazy. It would literally be made and molded to the floor pan of the car it was like a belly pan it was exactly like a belly pan and if you were thinking of engine power that was the worst thing you could do because you're restricting sometimes we had 90 degree bends in a tailpipe and it like you know one inch by 10 inch wide go 90 degrees and 90 degrees go around a frame rail and you know physics and you know flow dynamics tell you that that's screwed up you're killing yourself but we would pick up half a second in downforce under the car by doing this. Yeah. So 
sometimes the guys would get the wrong tailpipes. They thought that they needed a, a Charlotte downforce tailpipe versus a Vegas tailpipe, and they'd make a change, and they were off on power, which we found out was a tailpipe. It wasn't anything on the power of the crank. It was the different applications of the components that went to the engine, and that's that's how detailed this stuff gets. Um, it's crazy. I couldn't even imagine F1 what they deal with. Uh, we're, we're dealing with you know our engines and our assets we can bolt on the car um, at any given week, but you know, the budgets those guys still have, I could only imagine the variables they have for tuning an engine. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, you've had years of a great relationship with Ford. So take us through the first time you're, you're getting wind of the GT 40 platform. You got to build some motors. And then, I mean, you're from, you, I know you're, you know, born and raised in Illinois, but you've been in North Carolina long left. You call it Le Mans. Just like I do yeah, from Alabama, I, yeah, I know oh, it's yeah. I know it's yeah. supposed to be Le Mans, right? But Le Mans. it's Le Mans, yeah. right? Yeah, that's yeah. Le Mans. I'm, 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 I'm American, dude. I'm not. Right. Yeah, it's Le Mans. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I don't, yeah. Le Mans. Yeah. yeah, it's just fucking Le Mans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and Pontiac had a Grand Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so how yeah. does that get started? And like, I mean, it has to be quite uh, quite the buzz around the shop there for a while. Oh, it was awesome. So. We had a phone call from Ford that we had to get on at midnight. They all had to be at this other shop, not the NASCAR shop. We had a separate facility that at one time built all the Xfinity and truck engines. And when that kind of went away, we were doing a lot of grassroots stuff. We were building sprint car, off-road truck. Um, we did all the Hoonigan stuff for Ken Block. That's some badass stuff we did with them. Uh, I'll talk about that later. But we get on this phone call in the conference room. It was called Gasoline Alley. That's the street the shop's on. And it's uh, a guy named Dave Parasak, who was the kind of the guy brought Mustang back at Ford back when they started doing all the retro stuff in like 04, 05. Dave Parasak, um, and uh, let's say Mulally, the uh, CEO of Ford at the time. And he was talking about an Edsel Ford. They're on this phone call and they're talking about the 50th anniversary of uh, going to Le Mans, Le Mans and, and beating Ferrari. <laughs> And uh, they they want us to do it again. And uh, we're like, all right, great. They said, get your budgets together, send it in. So we spend about a month putting our budget together. And we think we're going to take the, the Coyote engine, the, the 5.0 engine, because that's what we were racing in the Daytona prototypes. And then they throw a curve at us. And they said, okay, uh, re, refocus your budget around this V6 EcoBoost. Take two cylinders off of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like, what? They're like, yeah, you're going to run a V6 twin turbo. And we'd never seen one at this point. And they said, what we want you to do is get it ready to run in Daytona prototypes for a couple of years, get it ready, proven out, and then we're going to put it over here in the Ford GT. So we had just signed Chip Ganassi to leave all the Chevrolet and BMW stuff to come to Ford. And we had a hell of a run with Chip. We were winning the you know, Rolex 24. We were winning Sebring. We're, we won a ton of races because his team – was set to win and we worked our asses off on that engine. And so we, we come to the final meeting and we put this budget together about what it was going to take to run. We want to take eight, four GTs out there. And, uh, Malawi gets on there and he said, you guys are fucking idiots. There's no way I'm spending $300 million to wave a flag over in Europe. He said, I can launch, <laughs> he said, I can launch three new car platforms that give our shareholders dividends. He said, this thing's over and he hangs up and we're all looking at each other in our building. Like, 
what do you, what just happened? <laughs> and he was serious. He was saying it's shit can. It's done. So Parasac and uh, Raj, Raj Nair, he was the chief technical officer. He, uh, they call us the next morning, apologized and said, all right, let's do this with four cars. Let's cut it in half, get really nimble guys. How can we do this? So we took a $300 million budget, which was crazy with all the testing and engines and cars we were going to do. I think we cut it down to about 80 million and they signed off on it. And it was called project Phoenix because the original one got, it was project silver. They wanted to go on the 50th anniversary. Uh, they re retitled it project Phoenix because the first one crashed and burned and then it was on. And they took us up to Detroit, the old Mazda plant in the basement. They had all the clay models of the new GT and it was like, spaceship like what in the hell is this thing man uh, the wings how the air went through the body versus you know a full you know shape of a car um how the air came in on the quarter panels on the rear went through the intercoolers and came out the tail lights the tail lights were directional for lift or downforce in the car um the you know the swing up doors i mean it just all this stuff was blowing our mind and we said you're serious we're going our way and they said yeah and they said we'll just a little bit of pressure, 50 years of the day, you want to go over there and sit on the pole and win the race just like you did. And if you look back at that Ford Ferrari, they had four years of screwing up to get that right. You know, they didn't just do it year one, Yeah. but the pressure was on us to do it year one. And we did it. Um, you know, started out that year was a little troublesome. We had some problems with the air shift in it and the transmission and then the brakes. But throughout the year, we were getting better and better. I think we finally won by mid-year with that car. And then we roll into Le Mans, or Le Mans, I'm saying it both ways. So um, we roll over there, and um, Ferrari, you know, you think they'd be like, screw you. You know, they embraced it. They loved it. There had never been a buzz at, at that race like there was around that Damn. Ford Ferrari. Um, they, that they, whole, they like an ass whooping then, huh? <laughs> uh, well, they, they weren't. They didn't think we could do it. They, they really just counted us. And uh, they had really big power. Um, those engines they had at the time, and they had this, you know, BOP, this balanced performance. And they had just gotten the last trophy where they, they had, we'd won a race and they took some of our downforce away. And uh, I'll be honest that we weren't probably putting everything on the table at the time until we went there to qualify. Of course. And we, we should have gone one, two, three, four, but we, we qualified first third and fourth and i think we hit fifth we missed the the top four by one spot and uh and then they were like oh shit they're they're ready and then we went to the race and if you watch that race any of the s's any of the turns the, those gts were just so badass getting in and off the corners just they're so nimble and agile and the ferraris had the big power but they couldn't catch us through the corners and that muslin straight used to be eight miles. Well, they got chicanes in it now. And we, we factored for that, the downforce of the car, the, the turns, the bank, the cornering. Um, and then the mild banking really lended itself to that GT and to come out of there with that win. And then Edsel Ford has been in our corner for many, many years. And to see him smiling and crying, saying, man, I was 17 with my old man here. And we did this with, you know, the old stuff with Carol Shelby in the Ford group and to come back and do this again, 50 years to the day, you guys, you have no idea what it means to my family and to be a part of that really meant something to us. So that's yeah, that, um, that pretty damn, pretty cool stuff. I got, I got to ask you though, during that process, when you're doing that, you're busting ass. 
there had to be a shit ton of guys not leaving at five o'clock. Oh, we worked around the clock. <laughs> and that's I'll what tell it, you another story. So get this. We're um we had to validate that engine for uh for thirty hours, which is the, the, the race at twenty four hours and then qualifying and practice, they wanted six hours on top of the, the, the twenty four to make sure it was it was ready to race. And we'd go to on these dynos, our simulation dynos at our shop and even up at Ford. And we couldn't get past 20 hours. We're blowing head gaskets left and right. And I'm talking right up to about three weeks before the main deal. We're getting ready to go to a 24 hour race and we can't keep an engine together because of the power we just laid into it with the boost and the, the turbos that we, we needed that kind of power to be competitive, but we didn't have durability. So we're making all these deck plates and getting special gaskets made, spending ton of money, ton of hours, pulling our hair out. And Robert Yates comes over to the shop and he's walking around looking at all our parts and swipe a year thing. Like, we're, like, we're like, man, what are we doing wrong, Robert? And he goes, You got any brass? You got any brass rod? And I said, Yeah. He's like, so what size? I told him like some half inch dowels. And he said, Yeah. He said, Go over to lathe. He said, Make me maybe a bunch of pieces about an inch long, down to seven eighths diameter. No, go go half inch diameter. He got a drill out and a reamer. And he drilled three holes around the sides of each cylinder, pressed the brass in there on each cylinder. So each cylinder, he kind of triangulated each, because the open deck, right? Triangulated it. He said, all right, put your gaskets on there and go to the dyno, see what you got. Man, first one went 40 hours. We're like, how the hell did you know to do that? He said, ah, oh, back in 68, Chevrolet brought this open deck, big engine to try to run with the Hemis of Dodge, and they are doing the same damn thing. The, the deck's walking around and you're losing your head gasket. He said, that's what you're doing. You're throwing all that boost in there, all that cylinder pressure, you're losing the head gasket. So he did that just on seeing, <laughs> remembering something from 68. That's going to be the, one of the greatest fucking things I've ever heard. Some mic drop. In oh, it saved our asses. Saved our asses. We we were like, thank God, Robert, just have to come to the shop to help us because we're trying to do it ourselves and we're going to show him we could do this. And we're getting down to almost a month out, and, and we, we didn't have an answer until he came over and saw that. And it was instant. He just saw it. Yeah, turn me some brass dowels. Get me a reamer. Get me an air drill. I'll fix this. And we're like, holy shit. He, to me, think so, of, honestly, think about the gravity of what he just said, of just I'm, walking I'm, through. I'm picturing the whole thing And be head. like, hey, what you need to do is you need to pin all that so it's not done walking around. Do it right. some brass rod. And, and then fast forward three weeks, you know, and you're winning, and you – that's oh, un fucking believable. Yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, that's knowledge, right? That's his experience shared with us, imparted onto us for, uh, um, you know, just amazing, amazing stuff, man. Uh, I could tell you countless stories of that. Um, there was this kid that hired the engine shop doing the teardown. This big kid, kind of like me. Uh, actually, it was me. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm chamfering. I'm chamfering flat tappet lifters in the lathe and I'm putting them in a three jaw chuck instead of a nice collet. And I'm, I'm trying to go fast. Cause I want to get them on the dyno. So I'm putting a lifter in there and I'd spin the T handle and it, it, it's it seat down on the lifter. What I didn't realize it was putting like micro fractures throughout the whole lifter. Like those are old cast pieces. Well, you didn't know it till you got about your third dyno pulling the engine come apart. Cause all the lifters were shattering and we're going to Michigan and I am, I'm, losing my mind because every engine i put on the dyno is blowing up doug we can't figure it out we figured it's a batch of lifters robert goes to this other warehouse we used to put all our old parts to sell he comes back with a tray of lifters he said just put these in there and then i'm 
gonna get you a real short set of wrenches, Jeff. You're the one that killed all those damn lifters. <laughs> he where I was breaking them. He knew but exactly thought, what was happening. He knew exactly. But Doug and I were doing <laughs> shop all night trying to fix it. He was at dinner working with sponsors. He came by to find out why we were still at the shop. And uh, he was looking at all the parts, looking at the broken lifters. He said, come here. He said, show me how you tighten that down. I said, he said, you're, you're spinning that T-handle trying to be fast, aren't you? I went, yep. He just can't do that, buddy. You got to just ease in there and seat it. And he said, you're fracturing all these things. So most guys would have gotten fired over that. My, my punishment was, again, this was about 3 o'clock in the morning we figured this out. We finished building two engines, and I had to get in a van and drive 10 hours to Michigan and be there by the time the garage opened to put the engine in the car to go qualify. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ran all night to get there. And – uh get those engines in the car. And, uh, and then he said, you won't do that anymore. Will you? I went, no, sir. <laughs> and then, so I think we, I think we won that race. Actually we won the race. And, uh, when we got back, you know, the Mac tool truck would come by to see us on Mondays, see what tools we needed. And he went out and bought one of those, you know, those real short mini sets of Mac tool wrenches. Yeah. He went and got it and had one of our guys, a really good engraver, engraved my name like in first calligraphy. <laughs> <laughs> he brought, and, he, and he presented it to me in front of the whole shop. <laughs> I bet you so, think about uh, that every time you look at a lathe now, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I've got that wrench set on the top of my toolbox. I've got, you know, sockets in my top of my box, but I keep that wrench set there to remind me of that deal with Robert. Uh, those are some cool stories. That's, a, that's knowledge on a different level. That's awesome. Oh, well, he's got to earn that somewhere, right? So how many times do you think he blew up motors the same way before he figured yeah. it out? That's where it yeah. comes from. It does. And, and you know, later on, we went ahead and bought nice round collet chucks where you could put the lifter in and it would seat all the way around 360 degrees. We just didn't have money back then. We were making do with what we had. And, and I was trying to go too fast and, and get the parts done so we get on the dyno sooner and find out if we're making power or what we needed to do. I just... uh you know, you got to balance speed and, and accuracy, right? So uh, instead of, you know, instead of laying a nice well down and, and rushing it, you always screw up, right? It's, uh, you got to be patient when, when it requires you to be patient. You talked about that. You got to put 40, 40 hours on that Le Mans winning engine. Um, what do you, what kind of hours do you put on a, on a cup car motor? So we dyno every engine when it's built. We do about a thousand engines a year. Um, we've got a process. Um, we heat the oil, preheat the water so that when the engine cranks, it's about a, a 30 minute warm up. We do about two power pulls. We shut it down. We check lash, make sure things good in the valve train. And then we go right into power runs. Um, I'd say it's about an hour process per engine from, you know, warming up, uh, break in, lashing and then power runs and uh you know we're doing 16 cars every week have to have their engines run and a backup engine so 32 engines a week are going across the dynos and that's just race production engines not to mention all the development engines that go to the avl for simulation and calibration um you know in total a thousand builds a year but um but a, but an hour for the uh the break-in and, and power run and we know right away uh, the third dyno pull and the power runs if it's going to make it like i said that one percent rule if something's not right and it's not performing we're looking at everything as far as the the data channels as far as you know gallons per minute on oil the water the water pressure um we monitor oil pressure in certain parts of the engine that you know that that we have access to 
on the diner that you wouldn't have in the car because you have one data point there. So when we see something's off and the data is still accurate, then we got to put that engine to the side. We pull our kind of like our crime scene investigation team in to go through that engine and find out what's wrong with it. And then right behind it, we're running all the rest of the production engines. When we find out what's wrong with it, we correct it and then put it back in and run it. Um, our process to build an engine is about a day and a half. You got a lead engine builder and assistant in a, in a work bay that um, there's three work bays per assembly station and every toolbox, the top drawer, second drawer, third drawer, all the tools are identical in each bay. All the, like the little parts containers, the little clear like tackle box containers, they have the little fasteners and O-rings and uh, everything we need to assemble the engine. They're identical in every station. So that if you're working in a different station, you know where your tools are, you know where your fasteners are. And then the lubes and adhesives, like the Loctites, are identical at each bay. Um, so a day and a half for a lead guy and an assistant to build an engine, if we have some kind of a panic, we can double up, put two lead guys and two assistants, and we can build an engine in three hours beyond the diner. But it's it's asses and elbows when you do that, and you're always second guessing your checklist to make sure, like, all right, got four guys, two guys, you can keep track of all your your assembly process, your torque process. Um, when you get going that fast, you're always concerned about what was missed. Um, but we have yet to have something go to that dyno to be run that has been a problem or loose, and then cause a bigger problem. We've we've been twenty years solid doing that. Um, and every once in a while, we have a problem. We have to do a recall, pull engines out of cars because we found a valve that broke. Um, we make some great power gain for Daytona. And then in a durability, we break a valve. And then we're like, okay, we're not taking that to the track. Pull all the engines back and change the valves. And, um, you got 32 engines coming back that night to be changed out. Um, you know, fortunately, we deliver engines two weeks in advance of a race. So it gives a little bit of cushion. But when we uh, when we break apart, we, we'd rather, you know, kind of go on the cautious side and pull it and find out why it broke and then bring it back at a later date for, you know, for more performance. Or we called the team and said, hey, we, we found out that this thing's three horsepower better for Daytona, which is about a tenth of a second. You might want to take it with you, but don't run your temps too hot. If you get over 300 degree water to temperature, this thing's going to grenade. And, and some teams will take it. I'll take it. I'll keep my water temps down. Um, it's their option to get that extra horsepower. But most of the time, we do a recall for durability's sake. No no failures. A fucking long, long journey from uh, slipping in that speedy dry with the jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, guys, tell you what. If you're serious about coming to Talladega, man, we'll host you. And I'm sure you got friends in all the other camps. We're cool. I've been in this thing long enough. I've worked in every camp, um, kind of like a, a Winston Churchill among all my competitors there. I'm not on a team anymore, so they don't see me as a direct threat. I'm more involved with our next-gen program where I sell components to Ford, Chevy, and Toyota teams, and I'm there to listen to things they need, what's, what's next, how do we help you guys make better parts for your cars uh, within the rules. And uh, so what I'm saying is if you guys have interest in coming, we'd love to host you. Oh, I'm going to get get you both on camera right now and admit <laughs> you know, I'm in. we're going to we're Talladega going. this year. I'm in. And we're going to go to Chicago. We're going to go to Chicago Street Race, I'm going. obviously. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to go to Talladega. I'm in. Let's do it. Well, we'll, Phil has we'll said a word. I said we're in. All right, we're in. We're going to Talladega right. this year. 
all right, we'll take care of your credentials. And then uh, I could probably help out with a motorhome spot. Um, you have to bring, I don't have an extra motorhome by chance, but uh, I get you a place to park. Hey, you we'll just, you just, get, us, you just okay. get us in there. Passes and that's all we need. That's all we need. All right. Uh, we got a couple standard questions and we'll let you go. I know you got to go. Uh, best piece of advice you've ever received? Man, uh, I tell you what, um, best piece of advice, um, you know, around the pit stops, especially, um, you know, slowing down will, will help you speed up. And then, and that's more about your thought process, slow down your thought process and then all your hand speed and foot speed will pick up. So kind of go slow to go fast. First. All right. We're going to guess first. I, I just got a feeling. All right. So first car. Yeah. We always go with, he's from what, Oak. He's from Oak park. What was your Illinois, first car so. and a story about that car? But before you answer, we got to get a little information because we might guess, right? So, uh, 91, you were right out of college. So that means you graduated in what, 88, 87? Uh, 85 from high school. 85 from high school, Oak Park. Um, it's a four door Ford Tempo. Four door uh, Ford Tempo. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's what you're going with. What are you going? 85? So I went to high school. So I moved down to Charlotte when I was seven years old. Oh, um, okay. That changes seen. everything. That, that, so I grew up in the South. That changes it. I'm, I'm, going, thinking, I'm, I'm thinking Oak Park. You know, 85, 85. I've got, I've got it. Go ahead. Phil. I, got, I got nothing on this one. I've got it's a, it's a I, bad era for me. This is what's crazy. It's going to be a dichotomy because he's worked for Ford for so long, but it was an S10. I guarantee it was a Chevy S10. Nope. All right. Go. 76 Color Supreme. Oh, did wow. not see that coming. Old, yeah. old, old Color Supreme first car. Now, I totaled that thing pretty quick after having it. Yes. And then, uh, <laughs> a my old man, uh, Everybody on this podcast yeah. has totaled their first car. Yep. Oh, shit. My old man, uh, he had bought, you remember Renault put the Lay car out? <laughs> yes. So my old man was in all You don't remember the Lay car? <laughs> you don't? I had a Lay car, car in high school. My it's like year. a Chevette. <laughs> oh, shit. A three lug nut, 14 inch wheel, Lay car. Yeah, you don't remember the Lay car? <laughs> no, I don't. I remember but the you could do one hell of a bit of like that car, man. You could be running sixty, uh, grab the handbrake, handbrake. top chasing you. You're going the other way. They you didn't do the same thing in a Chevette. Same thing, yeah. Chevette. Yeah. <laughs> it was Parker a vet. A Chevette was a vet. He had a vet. Yeah, that's what you tell them. Yeah. I, I get the vet in the parking lot. Yeah, sure. yeah, Chevette. Chevette. Yes. Uh, best NASCAR story. This is the one when you're sitting down. Everybody's having beers. That's the one you go to. This is the one. If nobody's heard it, I want to hear the best NASCAR story. Something oh, nobody's man. heard. Man, we uh, it, this is uh, this isn't rated. This show isn't rated, right? No, 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 no. You can say how whatever. Graphic, this is how graphic and free. Get on the story. Super you can get as graphic as you want to. This is our show. <laughs> All right. So I did have a year. I worked for Rusty Wallace. It was in the Ford camp. I exited, went to work for Rusty over, which was Penske at the time. And we had this uh, this truck driver guy who was kind of a legend from IndyCar came down and he was always at the bars night having fun with everybody. And uh, his roommate was in early uh, taking, you know, early nights, good sleep. And this guy comes in and he's singing, dancing, and he's got this uh, this girl following him in the room. And the, the roommate's pissed. He's like, damn it, we're supposed to go to sleep. We got a big day. It's Dover, Delaware. Big race. Okay. And uh, Rusty was always good at Dover. And so this guy's up all night rolling around in the bed with this girl. 
and keeping the roommate up and he's pissed. Well, early in the morning, about four o'clock, the girl gets up and she exits. Well, the roommate sees him passed out, you know, face down, spread eagle on the bed, and there's rubbers all over the floor. <laughs> so he goes over to the closet and gets like the paper dowel off a coat hanger and picks up on them rubbers, <laughs> packs it up in his butt. <laughs> right up in his back. <laughs> And so he goes to sleep, goes to sleep. Oh, it gets good. It gets good. So, uh, so the alarm goes off to get up at five 30. He jumps up and he goes to the shower. And when he gets out of the shower, um, the roommate that was naked sitting there, like, just like his hand on his head. He's like, man, what happened last night? And the other guy said, man, you came in, there was some dude with you and some girl y'all rolling around that bed all night. He said, I could have swore y'all were like, I don't know who was with who, but I think the guy was on for a little while and, um, and the other guy's like oh my god are you serious and he goes why he said man i woke up i had a rubber on my ass <laughs> like yeah, yeah i get that guy that guy that guy must must have put it must have left it in there when he got done <laughs> oh, shit. he let that guy he let that guy go all day thinking that they <laughs> get the race rusty is um He's dominating, leading the race, and he gets down to the uh, like the last laps. He's got a flat tire. Um, the caution comes out. He's running out of gas, and man, they're like they're like they're limping around on the flat of the track, trying to keep this thing running and sputtering. He's leading the race, and uh, sure enough, he wins the race. And another guy said, "Man, you're the lucky. You're out the lucky rubber up your ass. You won the race for us." <laughs> so, there's a little more to that story later. We'll talk about, but uh, it was. Uh, it was, and they finally told the guy in Victory Lane that I did that with a coat hanger. There wasn't any. Deal. Oh man, they should have left him hanging. That guy lived his whole life thinking oh, yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the, the funniest story oh. um, that I remember on the road and stuff like that. that uh, pulling that, jokes like that. That makes me feel like a good person because I've done, <laughs> I've done, I've done some true. mean shit, some bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, he thought he had had some kind of group sex thing going on. He was on the short end of it. <laughs> Man, this uh, is, this has been absolutely yeah. absolutely awesome. Yeah, it's truly amazing. Blast. We're gonna one, we're gonna have to reach out to you. I, I know you got some openings on some machining, possibly whatever. So we're gonna reach out for some for some opportunities there. We're going yeah. to we're going to multiple NASCAR races next year, and absolutely. then ne next time you come up to Illinois to visit, whatever we'd love to have you at the shop. Come on by. Love to do it, and I tell you, my dream car is a '67 442 convertible. And I could think of nothing. Now that Kyle sold his program off, one day I might be able to afford you guys doing that. Dude, so you just, uh, let, you just let us know. Come we'll on take by, care man. of it. We'll take care yeah. of it. Ten four. Well, guys, I really enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, apologies for the uh, technical difficulties early. No but I problem think we, at all. Good. We closed up well. So absolutely, uh, man. Been a blast. All right. Well, appreciate it. Thank and, you. And anytime we do things here in North Carolina for you, let us know. Thanks, I appreciate man. it. Take Thank care you awesome. very much. All right, y'all be safe. All right, you too. All right, good night. Good night. Big thanks again to Jeff Clark. Remember, you can keep up with Jeff by following him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Jeffrey Clark 8 on Instagram, at Jeffrey Clark 8 and at RoushYates.com. What a fucking awesome-ass interview. Dude, like hum uh, another humbling one. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, it makes you think you've stories. done nothing after listening to a lot of these it stories. It does, so. yeah. yeah. It's, it's, There's like, way like, more badass guys out there. Yeah. Way more. Yeah.
Just the, the last story, it's like, I got to step my game up <laughs> with you. I feel That's like. your takeaway, huh? Yeah, that, out of all that, right? I knew yeah, that was, after two some... and a half hours, the only thing he was saying was like, oh, I could get away with a lot more shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, I've, yeah. I've gone easy. You know, I've gone, it, like, taking it really easy on you. But honestly, unbelievable fucking yeah. stories, man. That I'm surprised there was not a single shot at the Ford GT. I know. Yeah, I you guys let me off. You guys let me We're, off easy. I figured it would be. There's a lot of motivation and inspiration behind that. I really yeah. want to know. Dude, that's true. As an owner of a Ford GT, how would you feel hearing that? Uh, he's not an owner of a GT. He's not? Yeah, he doesn't yeah. understand it. If I was, I would be very proud. Yeah. From a guy that has a friend that has one who's driven it, I can, like, just, I can share a little bit of the excitement. You know I have a picture of me yeah. in it, dude. Yeah. This cool. is a perfect Tim, time. My yeah. man Tim fucking mm-hmm. hooked it up. I've read a magazine about cars too. <laughs> Super fucking cool. It's the same. Uh, Kenny Davis actually found uh, the oh, perfect yes. car for Jer on Facebook and sent it to me the other day. Um, I'll send it to you. We'll have to hey, go ahead. Put this it. up on screen here. All right. Well, where'd it go? All right. That's a uh, right there. So that is a, a Fiero project car, eighty-five Pontiac. It's a Fiero, F I R O, with GT forty body, three point eight supercharged, sixty thousand miles. It's supercharged. If it is posted, it is available. That's the perfect car for dude. Him. It's almost it, like a GT, it, but smaller. It, dude, it checks all the boxes. It <laughs> yeah. honestly does. It's probably more nimble. You take that to fucking Le Mans. That you you Stop. drive that thing deep into the corners. <laughs> yeah. Fucker rotate like, like nobody's it. business. Driven deep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find this picture. What is it? It's a picture of you in a GT. It's a, it's a, <sighs> there's nothing right cool about you driving somebody else's GT. Dude, you want to see me a picture on a roller coaster? I've done all kinds of cool <laughs> shit. I don't own them. <laughs> Here's a picture of me at the ocean. Also, something I don't own. I hate you. You don't <laughs> own an ocean? <laughs> I fucking hate you. Here's a picture of me on a huge boat. Also, something I don't own. I don't even know where this picture is. Yeah. Dude, there's so many cool pictures. There's in a here. picture of me <laughs> on a giraffe. Also, something I don't own. You don't own a giraffe. I could see you a on tiny like a giraffe? baby giraffe. Yeah. If you could own a baby giraffe, you wouldn't have one. Oh, fuck yeah! I would. Exactly. Hundred percent. George is basically a baby giraffe. Oh, look at that. If it's this is me. a picture, I don't want to see that's you in me, something. That's my son. Look at that. Zoom in on that. Okay. Okay. Cool. Wyatt was in a GT. I was driving. I drove it. <laughs> yeah, but it's not his dad's. <laughs> he, he doesn't know. He's just, he's just, he like he got oh, he knows. It. You're telling me that Wyatt doesn't know that his dad doesn't own a GT? <laughs> he walks into the garage every morning. I guarantee. No GT here. Do you, yeah. you think he looks down on me because of that? 100%. He's think, told me before. Has he really? He's like, do you think anybody else that has, you know a lot of people that own GTs. Do you think they would adopt me? <laughs> I want a new dad. He did not <laughs> fucking say that. He did. Dude. Every morning. It feels right. Every morning yeah. he goes out there. In the garage, just hoping today's the day that he's going to see that his dad has something cool. Yeah. Maybe dad's going to bring it home today. Yeah. No, Fuck. son. Dad doesn't have it. No, dad doesn't. Still doesn't have a GT. He's got a calendar of days without seeing dad's GT. How many days? Do you since, think? How many days since dad still doesn't have a GT? <laughs> you think showing your a picture of your son in another man's GT is like redemption? No. <laughs> We're moving on. You won. You, uh, you defeated me. I'm <laughs> Was an honest victory. <laughs> well, well fought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on to the whiskey review. We're <clears throat> we're in it now, dude. The Litchfield 
stuff was solid. Yeah. This is this is interesting. It's, it's got like a cinnamon. Very cinnamon. Very cinnamon. Extreme it's a cinnamon bomb. Yeah. Hits was you, not expecting that. Hits you hard. But it doesn't I you don't for feel me, the proof. The one twenty one proof isn't it doesn't I don't taste it. It's hit me in the chest hard. This, I get it. I this get it. shit's oh. good. Yeah, it's good. It's Both of them are good. I think we're a little into it, but good, good submissions, man. That's, what was, uh, what was the, where's the letter at? Right was it Andrew? Uncle Terry. <laughs> Terry, Larry. Austin Terry. Clark. Yeah. Austin Clark sent some fucking bangers. He did. So first one up. The local. Litchfield. The local yokel. It's which, not uh, Connecticut. It's local to him. Yeah. Oh, to him. Yeah, it was local gotcha. to him, which for us is not w- local. What's our what's our local like? Locally, I would say I was a little bit. I was a little bit scared with a local distillery. Right. I'm gonna they are I'm gonna go ahead and good. not say a thing and let you talk about our local distillery. So Please our, put your foot in your mouth. Yeah, our local. No, I, well, I'm not gonna <laughs> put my foot in my mouth. The local distillery happens to hold the title for the war, the number one worst bourbon of all time. <laughs> what's the name of it? <laughs> Copper Fiddle. It's I'll, a. It's literally a joke. We. I bring uh, the bottle to various friends' houses as a gag gift because it's so fucking bad. <laughs> and it and then we re-gift it. You take it to the next guy. How bad is it? <clears throat> it's horrible. It's it's not palatable. It's not drinkable. Whiskey Acres bad? Worse. It's mm. the widget. It's the worst. It's the worst. You can't even make a cocktail with it. It ruins the cocktail. It's that bad. So I'm forever scarred by local distilleries that aren't in the Kentucky, Tennessee region. You think? You think yeah, we did that one... Still small distillery in uh, Kentucky. We went down there. That was not good at all. Yeah, that yeah they're not. Suck. Them and Copper Fiddle aren't putting age statements on their no, bottles. That was simply, I would classify that as just simply barn. not good. Yeah. So, you know, like that not was horrible, not off-putting, just not good. That's just distilled that was, grain alcohol. That was like, well, that's, we're not yeah. getting into yeah, we don't need to, We don't need to name names, but simply put, that's for uh, a local distillery, five-year, something I've never heard of. Connecticut, five year, solid, dude. five year, ninety proof. I don't know what the mash bill is. It drinks like a weeder. It's it's good, like a weeder, uh, like a weeder. Like, Take oh, fast, <laughs> weeder, weeder, weeder. How about we just wheat like a wheat? Ted, yeah, weeded, yeah, a weeder. It's good. I don't. Uh, I I, I, str- I struggle to rate it. I don't know. It's been a minute since we've rated something. It's twenty twenty four. It's first first rating of the year. Um, I I like this. I like this as well. Yeah. Um, that's I'm, a six eight. It's a six eight for me. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna struggle with this multiple review only because I I, I fucking like Mike Rowe a lot, right? Yep. But I like the Litchfield local distillery a little bit better than the Noble. Really, I really do. Yeah, for me, it it the, the heavy cinnamonness <clears throat> going on there. It's a little much for me. It's not bad. It's I wonder shit. if it had been I'm different if I started that. with that. It could it, be. I probably would have burned some more. Interesting. It's just like there's some yeah. interesting. Dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip like, up it. I'm gonna keep them. It's a close. That's a close knit group. I'm gonna go six eight on the Noble, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do a six nine on the Litchfield. It's right there. They're they're both both solid drinkers. Good stuff. Just. The flavor on that's a little much for me. I like the flavor on the Nola. There's a lot of chest burn. On that this? Was a, yeah, instant got me, lit me up. Uh, I'm going to go 6.5 on the Noble. And I'll agree on the 6.8 on the Litchfield. I like that one a lot. 
was a yeah. good, smooth, easy drinker. It was. Good flavor. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going six nine on the noble. So we got a six eight, a six nine, and a six eight on the five year Litchfield. Nice. We got a six five, a six eight, and a six nine. That's a tight little cluster. On the noble. These eight. Hey, Good grouping. Fucking great whiskeys. Yeah. This is something we don't see. Either one of these we don't see yep. on the shelves. Complete think surprises. Are available around here? Or I'm going to look nationally. and see now. I mean. Mike Rowe probably has got the distribution, you'd think. You'd think. It, anywhere you're at, you look for Litchfield, five-year bourbon whiskey. Look for Nobel, K-N-O-B-E-L. For those that are listening, not watching. Noble, Knobel, however you want to Yeah, you can it. say Knobel if you wanted to. <laughs> Uh, both great fucking bourbons. Something to uh, something to try to find. Good stuff. Fucking, you going to Talladega this year? Both y'all, dude. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. When is it? It's two times a year. Wait, what What's the time that we're going? You got the first one and the second one. Okay, the first one probably is before the second one. Yeah, it's earlier. Let's do the okay. second one because yeah, the early one seems like it's coming up. Like I think the second one's in September. September. First one's earlier than that. Well, look it up. It doesn't mean you got. How do you not know this? You Dude, all the not. fucking shit that you know, you're not going to rattle. I don't off. know lots of things. What are we going to do? We don't have an RV. I know useless things. What, we don't have an RV. We can stay in a hotel. Then you're not in the infield with the RV situation. Well, you're right. We need an RV. You've never, you've never lived. Who's got an so RV? our next yeah. guest? Is somebody's, the owner somebody, of <laughs> somebody's got off something with Prevost. Yeah. Who do, who's got a Prevost? Who's got the plug at Prevost? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anything less than a Prius, we're not interested. One eight hundred rented RV. I know somebody that owns Tiffin, Tiffin Motor Coaches. There's that Liberty Motor Coach right in town. What if it's just one eight hundred? Those are yeah, Prius. RV, dude. Those yeah. are Prius. Really? Yeah, right in fucking Libertyville, right down the street. We need a we sure? need a Prius. Yeah. Orland Whiskey needs a Prius uh, to go. Who is who is cool? That would be fun to hang out with. That has a Prevost. Who's listening we're gonna in exploit, the Talladega yeah, we're area exploit this that wants right us? Want, they can come along. Yeah, let's spend the weekend in Talladega. You heard it right here, dude. We're getting hooked up. Oh yeah, and if you if you've got yeah. the motorhome, you've got infield passes as well. Right, we're gonna be and whoever's a shit ton of listening bourbon, right? right now. I think 2024 is the year of just full sellout. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, we're we'll three exploit, dudes that we'll want to party. Exploit whatever for our gain. Yeah, we want to do cool shit. Whatever you got, man. You got a cool trailer, something cool with you? Like, yeah. Bring it. Fucking jacked up golf cart. A lake car. Like a lake car. Thanks again for listening to Oil and Whiskey with the Roacher Shop and Ironclad Original. Thanks again to our guest Jeff Clark. See you again next week. <laughs>